Um, everyone, uh, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We are on episode 81, celebrating uh, Cybersecurity Month. Uh, we want to th throw a shout out uh, to our sponsors. Thank you, Phoenix Contact, for sponsoring this. And we want to welcome our guest talking about offensive cybersecurity and all the puns that will come, uh, Grant Vanderbreak. Uh, Grant, welcome to the show. Thank you for being yes. here. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here. This will be a fun discussion. So, No, absolutely. And me and Grant really had a, a good conversation off stream, and I'm really looking to uh, dig deep into some of the topics. But before we do that, Grant, could you give us a little bit of a background about yourself? I know that you did study electrical engineering, so I'm really curious. You know, again, I, I think we spoke to Pascal about his transition. But I wanted mm -hmm. to hear from you as well. Uh, what events took place for, for you, I guess, to start your career in manufacturing, automation, as an electrical engineer, and the transition into networking and cybersecurity? Yeah, yeah, that's a good place to start. So like Pascal, myself, I was a controls engineer. So I've been with Phoenix nine years, uh, 10 years in a few months, um, started right out of school. Uh, I started as a something called a solutions engineer. So it's kind of a application engineer for control and um, customer projects. So in that role, I learned how to program PLCs and um, did a lot of projects for SCADA applications, remote communications, um, dealing with Modbus protocol, DMP3 protocols, all using our controllers, but um, all interfacing with other controllers from other vendors like Siemens and Rockwell. So kind of got a, a breadth of all kinds of different control environments, um, did things with oil and gas, water, wastewater, electric utilities. So I've kind of done a little bit of everything. Um, that was kind of the basis of my career to start. Um, did that for about five years. And then a former colleague of mine, who I'll give a shout out to Tom Van Norman, who now runs ICS Village, which is a really good outreach program. Um, he worked at Phoenix Contact. He was sort of our network cybersecurity specialist. And he kind of took me under his wing and said, hey, you should get Cisco certified. <laughs> you should help me on these data projects. And I was like, hmm, sounds interesting. Uh, so I went and got Cisco certified and started deploying Cisco routers for some of our projects because um, when we're dealing with SCADA, there's a lot of VPN tunneling and also private private networks from Verizon. So uh, cell modems with VPNs, doing firewalling, doing some assessment work to kind of provide a secure remote connectivity solution was kind of the first foray for me. Um, from there, I started um, a services wing for Phoenix Contact for doing network design and cybersecurity assessments and those kinds of things. And that kind of evolved over time into working on the product development side, which is where I'm now. So I, I help with a lot of our advanced layer three products and also some of the cybersecurity products that we manage here in the US. So I work globally, my title is Senior Global Systems Engineer. So that's just a fancy title for I help our customers deploy Phoenix networks and security solutions effectively. So that's kind of the, the, uh, the career arc for me, so. Grant, yeah. a couple of questions. Really appreciate that uh, that introduction. A couple of questions. Number one, I guess just for my personal knowledge, and I'm sure that we'll have this from our listeners, uh, when you were getting started, the Phoenix Contact PLC Next platform was not there yet, right? So I'm curious, like, no. which platforms were you using at the time? Yeah, so we are. We had a couple of platforms. There was the inline controllers, which have been around since the '90s. A um, okay. couple firmer iterations there. It's uh, kind of similar to 
uh, Rockwell IO looking its modular um, swing arms to actually turn, pull, remove the actual wiring harnesses. Um, we had bus couplers for a lot of different protocols. Our de facto protocol is Profinet. Um, us being a German company, that was kind of where we, we settled. That was sort of the first line. And then when I first started, we came out with Axio line, which is the same form factor and look as PLC Next, which is sort of the grandfather of PLC Next. Mm -hmm. um, but that was before we went with the open, um, open automation sort of style with a Linux operating system, being able to have some flexibility. Um, <clears throat> Axio line was kind of cool because it was our first foray into high-speed I.O., um, so we did, you know, go after some more high-speed I.O. applications and, um, yeah, it, it provided some more flexibility. So I've, I've used all the platforms. The old platforms used um, something called, um, uh, I'm blanking right now. We had a different programming environment. We didn't use PLC Next Engineer. So okay. it was sort of the standard IEC 61131. So that's what I'm familiar with using ladder logic, function block, um, structured text, that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's always interesting, you know, to learn about what technologies were there. I want to say like before today, because I guess I was not intimately familiar with the Phoenix Contact platform as I am today. So it, it's really cool to uh, to hear some of those platforms. But next question, uh, curious about the again, like the transition. So you went and did your Cisco certification. Like, which one did you go for? Because I know there's like the networking one, right? The routing and switching, but there's also like the niche. Like the cybersecurity ones, there's like more advanced. Uh, I think like routing you can you can get into, and there's obviously like more advanced CCIEs or like professional and enterprise or something like that. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think this is a great thing for the community for anybody who's comes from a controls background and would like to transition into a cyber role because honestly, we need more folks who have controls backgrounds interested in cybersecurity because. It's only going to be more prevalent and we need more people that can help uh, with cybersecurity in OT and ICS. Uh, so for me, it was Cisco certifications for routing and switching and security. I did an intensive boot camp, which sounds intimidating. It, it was a little intimidating. So it was the seven day program. I basically was locked in a hotel for it was like 12 hour days for seven straight days. We got, I got a CCNA for routing and switching, CCDA for design associate, and then the CCNA security certification. You basically uh, do week? some lesson. Yeah, in a week. Wow. <laughs> it's called intense school. Um, so it was, it was great because I got all of those really quickly and um, got it all out of the way and I didn't have to worry about, you know, spending months and months studying, but it was, they were very long days for sure. So. Uh, if you're into that, I recommend it. If you're not, you know, go ahead and buy a book and, and study up. There's a lot of um, community colleges out there that will offer some CCNA training courses. That I would say is, it's a really good foundation because, you know, Cisco is pretty prevalent. Command line is pretty prevalent with advanced network technologies, even in um, ICS. You also get some foundation um, in security fundamentals, along with working with Cisco products, which can be advantageous. There's all kinds of other security um, cert, uh, certs that are offered. SANS is a great organization to do security. I've attended and I have one of the SANS certifications, the GICSP. And then um, Security Plus is also a great way to get started. Um, Phoenix Contact, we, we're we going to start a program to offer Security Plus internally so we can train more people in yeah. cybersecurity. So that's, that's a big thing. And 
I highly recommend if you're interested in, in cybersecurity, find one that kind of fits what you, you want, what kind of works for your study environment and um, yeah, get some training. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, you know, and we're going on a, a slightly tangential, I guess, a conversation, <laughs> but I know that nowadays there's quite a few, I guess there's several like, competitors to Cisco, I believe, right? It's uh, like Palo Alto Networks and there's also, yep. I don't know if Fortinet like has their own like hardware, but I think HP has like switches. And mm-hmm. it, again, I guess I know from my, at least like exposure and controls, a lot of it is still Cisco, but I guess like, what are your thoughts on like the current landscape is uh, Cisco still like the dominant force or is it worth like looking at some other competitors for like the certifications at least? Yeah. Um, I would say this, this Cisco has done a great job in, in providing training. That's kind of a fundamental, okay. um, you know, they are the thousand pound gorilla in the room, right? A lot of customers use them. They have products that kind of fit in a lot of different markets. They're very, very prevalent on the IT side too. Um, in terms of like cybersecurity, Palo Alto's there. I've run into them. Fortinet's there. I've run into them. Um, if you're trying to find sort of a vendor agnostic um, approach to either network training or security training, I always recommend Network Plus, Security Plus. Those are great. They're not really ICS focused, but it's really good to get fundamentals uh, first. The the SANS organization has great trainings for for entry-level security people. And also they have a whole track for ICS. So they have multiple certifications and trainings for ICS in a bunch of different areas. Uh, the GICSP uh, training course is sort of their entry-level one for ICS. It's really good. The instructors are awesome. The content's awesome. And they give you a really good foundation to kind of improve yourself off of and maybe find a focus for OT cybersecurity. So, yeah. Awesome. I'll try and get those links uh, in for those who, who are viewing slash like listening in podcast form in the show notes. Uh, Dave, mm-hmm. you have a comment? Yeah. No, no. I was going to say, Grant, I think that you might be the most certified person on this show. If not the most certified <laughs> person, you're certainly the person that has acquired the most certifications over the course of seven days. Um, and and I don't know, it feels kind of strange that, that I'm asking this question, right? Because it's typically Vlad. But uh, kind of from your experience, do you, I guess a two-part question. One, do you think that those certifications have been valuable as part of your learning? And would you suggest other people going to get those certifications as potentially an entry point into cybersecurity or ICS cybersecurity? Yeah, I think they've been extremely valuable in, in giving me perspective and also mm-hmm. kind of a, a wide berth of applications. So, you know, the one thing that I deal with day to day is we, we sell into a bunch of different markets. Everybody kind of does security slightly different in each, yep. each market networking slightly different. There's different technologies in each one. Some use, you know, PTP protocol for precision time. Some just use NTP because you don't need that, that accuracy. There's little nuances like that. Training programs can kind of help you give you the basis of all of that, where it all comes from. How do you understand layer three technologies? How do you understand what a firewall actually does? What is an mm-hmm. application firewall? You know, all seven layers of the OSI model. Those, those really give you sort of the foundation to get started. And then you can kind of research on your own. Uh, you can go out and find some training resources from things like Udemy, uh, which is another uh, way to get some cheap training or cheap extensive training. 
Um, so I think those kind of work to give you a foundation. And then the certifications are great because they kind of are a badge that you wear that you say, mm -hmm. look, I've, I've done this. I have this knowledge base. It's great for, you know, you know, making an argument to executive management or saying, hey, mm -hmm. I have a certification now. We should do more with our security program. I have some basis to help us get get somewhere. So that's really good for that. And then, you know, if you're an integrator, somebody who helps customers, it always helps to say, look, I'm certified to this standard. I have a knowledge base in that you can rely on me to help you with your security needs. So, yeah, really important there. And then one I will say for the penetration testing, Mm -hmm. The OSCP offensive security certification from the Cali organization is great. Um, that's kind of the, the industry standard for offensive side. I don't have that one. I would love to work toward that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, always recommend that for the offensive side. I like this transition. You know, I, I think, you know, we've asked you a lot of questions on your background, but if we want to turn our heads towards the topic we've set out to discuss today, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. offensive cybersecurity, right? And I, I think, again, to just to break it down for our listeners slash viewers, there's going to be an offensive side, which is looking to, I guess, introduce malware or attack a facility mm -hmm. slash infrastructure in some sort of a way versus there's going to be the defensive side, which is more concerned how do we prevent the attackers from coming in? And I think mm -hmm. the the discussions that me and Dave have prepared is that today we're talking from the offensive side and next week we're going to talk mm -hmm. more from the defensive side. But Grant, mm -hmm. maybe throw a, a, an easy question for you, but I, I think still very relevant. What kind of motives would someone have to attack, I want to say, a, a manufacturing plant, right? Like just to simplify it, I guess, like to a single like infrastructure standpoint, what could be some of the the things they're looking to gain by sending a cybersecurity attack? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. And I think there's there's a lot of different motives and it kind of depends on the entities involved in the attack, the the threat actors. You know, we we obviously have the cyber criminals out there that are trying to throw a wide net out. You know, they put phishing campaigns out there to try to get somebody to click. And then all of a sudden you have malware or ransomware running rampant through IT and then hops over to the OT side. And if you, you know, saw the podcast from Pascal, you should have a boundary there. Um, that's kind of the probably the most common is the the ransomware just getting into the network, kind of phishing its way into the, the OT network, causing issues, downtime, and all they're looking to do is to make money, right? They're going to ransom those systems. They're going to ask for you to pay or that ransom so that they can make a quick buck and then move on to the next Joe that doesn't have proper security controls in place. That's kind of the, the run of the mill um, situation. I think the scarier situation is a very targeted actor who has some intent into why they want to get into your manufacturing environment, your the utility space, wherever. Those are the ones that are the most dangerous. And the there's a wide ranging um, motive for, for those people. It could be they're trying to steal intellectual property. Maybe you're a process. Um, you have some sort of ingredient that you put into the system. Maybe they're trying to exfiltrate that information and steal that intellectual property. That's not very common. Maybe it's a, um, you know, state sponsored type thing where it is a competitive situation to some other state um, company. And they're in there trying to disrupt your operations because you're a competitor for some 
um, it, for some company in some other country. It could also be that it is a state sponsored and they're trying to bring down a system that may provide power to, um, you know, to a, a city. It could be um, trying to disrupt operations for safety purposes, um, mm -hmm. you know, removing uh, controls to, to prevent explosions or, or over temperature events or boilers from, ex from going too high in temperature and exploding. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different possibilities. Those are probably less common than the people trying to make money because in general, cybersecurity outside of sponsored actors is really a money-making venture. People are trying to make money to justify the resources they put into it. It's just like any <laughs> any capitalist um, market, which is kind of funny because, yeah, they're going to invest and then they're going to try to get some return on that investment. So that's kind of the more common one. And, you know, the Colonial Pipeline incident, I think, is kind of a good, you know, um, case study on that is that was ransomware that kind of traveled further than they expected it to go. And it, you know, encrypted some payment systems that um, the pipeline operator needed to be able to get money for the oil that they're pushing through the pipe. Um, so it took down operations. It wasn't originally intended to do that from the person that, you know, sent out that ransomware. They were just looking to make a quick buck, um, but it ended up taking down operations. So that's kind of the, you know, spectrum of attackers typically. Grant, if we can dig into that a little bit deeper, mm -hmm. I guess, and taking those specific like cases aside, right? Like if I'm, let's say, a control systems engineer at a manufacturing plant, and I'm trying to get a better idea of what a ransomware could do to my, let's say, like hardware slash software. Is it mm -hmm. like, is it, I want to say, is it good to assume that I come in one day and like my PLCs are no longer running and now I have to re reflash my PLCs? You know, what does it really like? In fact, is it going to be our programming laptops? It's going, is it going to be like our switches? Because I, I think like we need to like maybe like bring this down to, um, the control system side, because we're trying to understand like what kind of an impact could it have potentially on uh, the operations of like control systems? Could it in fact, you know, because I know, for example, there's protocols in uh, sensors now, right? So there's IO link. I know that you can send data to sensors. Would it affect, yeah. could, could it possibly affect, you know, like my sensors? Obviously it cannot send signals to a, uh, to a prox that's on or off, but you know, like mm -hmm. to what extent could I expect uh, and see this attack uh, impact on my facility. Yeah, if you're talking ransomware, it's it's going to be low-hanging fruit because all they're trying to do is create the, the you know, ransomware malware that can affect mm -hmm. the most systems to get the most impact and get the most return on that ransom. So if they can encrypt a bunch of PCs that are critical to operations and they ask for $2 million in ransom, then that's fine enough for them. Um, you know, we haven't really seen ransomware for PLCs yet. I know Pascal mentioned that in the closing <laughs> concept, comments about ransomware for PLCs. That would be a terrifying uh, venture. So I'm hoping, yep. you know, I'm hoping that's further off than, than we think. But a lot of times it's going to be, you know, Windows PCs, uh, vulnerable systems. Mm -hmm. And the reason why ICS and OT is such a soft target is because the life cycles of all these um, systems that we deploy are so long. Like on an IT yeah. side, five years is usually as long as they'll keep a server running or a, a desktop PC. We're looking at 15 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. So then all of a sudden you have Windows 7 and XP systems in your OT environment 
those are, there's no more support for those. Windows is not giving out any patches, any vulnerabilities that come out, you're on your own. So if you don't build the proper protections, those are low hanging fruit. Ransomware is gonna come in and utilize things like SMB vulnerabilities in XP or any sort of the, the vulnerabilities in Windows 7 to be able to infiltrate that system and then encrypt all of the data or the process, the applications that need that data on the PC. So it's usually the PCs. Um, it could be embedded Windows PCs that are HMIs. It could be your MES systems, your databases. If it's running a vulnerable Windows operating system and you're not patching and updating it properly, it's probably going to get hit and you're not gonna be able to decrypt it without a lot of help or paying the ransom. So that's yeah. where they're gonna target. Um, you know, could a factory line operate without connections back to the PC systems? Sure, usually you do need some sort of closed loop control. Mm -hmm. you, you, if you're dealing with SCADA and MES, you're trying to provide supervisory control. So once you have mm -hmm. no visibility, do you, you really wanna operate that without any visibility into what's yep. actually happening? So it can be a, a tricky situation. Um, you know, one of the things that I always talk about is, is practical security. If you consider the ramifications of a ransomware incident and losing the PCs, have you planned properly to say, mm -hmm. I can operate this system locally without the need of the PC or the HMI? Um, those are some of the things you can consider to keep operations flowing in those, in those circumstances. So those are some of the things that you got to consider. Interesting. Great. I, love um, it, I was going to say, if I may, mm -hmm. um, I, I like talking. Uh, I like kind of the conversation about uh, kind of the varying different systems. And if they're old systems, they may be on, on old software. So you coming, call it from, from the attacking side, right? Are you looking at potentially trying to get into a SCADA, get into an MES? Or are you looking on, on a network, sniffing a network, looking at something saying, hey, let me go get into this window XP because there are, I don't know, a thousand different vulnerabilities. Like mm -hmm. what, what perspective are you looking at from the attacker so that we can think about potentially better ways to defend that? Yeah, I think it, it, it kind of depends on, you know, are you a penetration mm -hmm. tester hired to do to do something specific yep. or are mm -hmm. you a you know criminal out on the Internet yep. trying to make money? If you're a criminal. You're trying to do the least amount of work to get the mm -hmm. most return. So you're going to target Internet facing systems running legacy mm -hmm. operating systems with tons of vulnerabilities that you don't have to do a ton of work. I can buy some yep. tool set on the black market and it's already good. Yep. I just hit go and it literally will do the attack for me. That's out okay. there. So that's the thing you have to know is a lot of these attackers, it's ransomware as a service. There is mm -hmm. an entity that okay. builds a platform to deploy ransomware to make money. They sell that to um, hackers or somebody yep. who wants to make a portion of the profits. And then literally it is a tool set that they have where it's a grab bag of different tools that exploit different vulnerabilities. And you go out, you start scanning for vulnerable systems that's probably built into the tool set, and then you literally yep. hit go, and it makes it easy for you. That's the scary part, is yeah. if ransomware is, is made easy, it's a business. Um, from a penetration tester perspective, mm -hmm. this is where you got to see the value in penetration testing. The value in penetration testing is testing the threats, the vulnerabilities, and the impacts, which is the risk equation for yeah. a business. If you are worried about certain risks 
for your company and you want to test the controls, you want to test the procedures and processes you have, maybe your incident response plan, you hire a penetration testing team with certain objectives and certain scope, you want to scope it properly mm -hmm. to then do something specific. And then you're trying to get some specific outcome. You're trying to find out what is your defense? What are your defense capabilities? Is it going to work? Or is that attacker going to get in and disrupt the system? So that's kind of the difference in, in the two things. And do you think that organizations who are out there hiring penetration testers, do, do you think that, I guess, in your experience, in your conversations, have they generally covered most of the low-hanging fruit? Like, let me make sure I don't have open ports to a Windows XP computer, something along the... Uh, have they generally done that or is the, the first penetration test like, uh, okay, come come show me everything that's absolutely terrible and then we're going to go spend the next six months fixing that? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, okay. You know, there's a there's a really funny meme and I love the there's a cybersecurity hub um, on LinkedIn and they always mm -hmm. post the best memes. They and do. it's like there's a guy, he's got like a bulletproof vest and it says organization. And then mm. there's a pen tester and he hands him a gun and he's like, all right, shoot me. And he shoots him in the leg, <laughs> like avoiding the, the bulletproof vest entirely. And he's the penetration tester. And that's some of the things that you get with penetration testers is you can put all the controls in place that you want, but mm -hmm. unless you actually have somebody looking and testing those, you may not have configured it properly. You may yep. not have considered all scenarios. Mm -hmm. You may not have considered certain um, contexts or certain environmental conditions that may cause a, an attacker to have an avenue or a, a okay. vector into your network. Mm -hmm. So that's where the penetration test is, is super value because it's, it's really testing in a live situation or maybe in a test system, which we can talk about for OT purposes. Yep. how your protections are going to work, how the policies okay. and procedures that an organization puts in place work, and then how your team responds if they see something occurring that might be you know, fishy or, or suspect on the network. So it really is testing that. And you know, there's a lot of cybersecurity is a spectrum. I mean, mm -hmm. there's large organizations who have very mature security programs, even in ICS and OT. They, yep. prob they have red teams, maybe hired internal or contractors. They may do um, vulnerability scanning or web scanning for open ports on all available public IPs on their network. Um, those organizations are, are the ones that are the most mature. If you're considering hiring penetration testers, you really need to know what the value you're going to get out of it is. If you don't have any protections in place, there's no point in hiring a pen penetration tester because yeah. they're going to find something. Like you you didn't do the basics to get to the place that you really need to be, which I loved what Pascal said in the last one, which is secure architecture is the foundation. If you don't put in firewalls, protections, micro segmentation, they're gonna get in, <laughs> like yeah. they're going to get in. So there's really no point if you haven't done the basics to having a penetration testing tester come in. It's really, penetration testing is really valuable to mature organizations that are trying to find that next little margin of additional security, additional testing, additional verification that their protections are good. And then that is marginally more secure over time. But the, the architecture and the foundations are really where you get the biggest return on security. Grant, we have a good question. Uh, I really appreciate that answer. I think that offers a lot of insight. I guess I'm also 
having thoughts around when does penetration testing come in. And I think mm-hmm. we have to dig a little bit into that. But we do have a question from Paul Wright, which mm-hmm. I think like we, we still should explore. So he's asking any specific concerns or vulnerabilities that you see around autonomous mobile robots. And I, I want to, I guess, like extend that a little bit. So he's talking about pallet movers. But mm-hmm. again, I think like I understand that maybe the low hanging fruit is the like IT side with, you know, the obsolete like machines that we still have on the OT side as well. But mm-hmm. are you seeing any um, hackers starting to think, well, maybe we can attack these like PLC systems. Maybe we can attack these like, you know, IoT slash edge embedded systems. Maybe we can target certain robots, right? And I know that there's different vendors and there's certainly like different constraints, but are you seeing, again, like just to get maybe a pulse on the industry, a certain like trend to go towards more of this like OT infrastructure specifically? Because I think that would do a lot of damage, right? If you could, and, and I think we know that there are vulnerabilities. They're documented by uh, the OEMs in, in a lot of cases. And mm-hmm. I just, I don't know how much, like effort has been done or malicious effort has been done to try and get into them. So there are definitely cases of, um, you know, threat actors actually out there exploiting vulnerabilities in PLC systems to gain some access and control of a process or a manufacturing environment or an electric grid. It is documented. So one of the books that I'm going to recommend um, later on has a timeline of a specific group called Sandworm, which is, um, you know, attributed to the Russian hacking organization. It's a crack team of hackers that actually documented over time, sort of expanded their capabilities. They hit the Ukrainian power grid, which is a really good case study. There's a lot of great information from some of the ICS security vendors out there on what happened there, how to how how that attack occurred, some of the things that happened. Um, it's really crazy when you start reading some of the things that Sandworm did. I mean, one of the things that they did was literally, you know, operators are sitting at the HMI. They're watching the actual actuators and buttons being clicked for them as they're standing there. And then they're trying to phone back to the control center to get some help. And they denial of service the phone. So they're watching the system do things without them touching it. Crazy. Lights going on and off, breakers flipping, and then they can't call anybody. So they're literally just stuck there staring at the system operating itself. So there are absolutely um, attacks out there and there are absolutely actors out there who want to target those systems. Now, the difference is those actors are not really there to make money because Mm -hmm. ICS systems all, most of them run some sort of embedded real-time operating system that might be proprietary. If it's proprietary, that means that they've got to reverse engineer it to get malware that would actually install and run on that system. So it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, Because of that, it's not really a low-hanging fruit for them to be able to control that system to then leverage it for for money. Um, So it takes a lot of time and a lot of expertise to build those tools and those um, exploits to actually get into those systems. So that's where you see it's more nation state sort of political hacking going on when you're talking about the PLC based stuff. So 
Sandworm yeah. is a great book. I, I can talk about it a little bit later too, but mm -hmm. it kind of goes through a lot of that. And then a lot of the, um, you know, the efforts within the U S government to kind of prove out these scenarios. And actually we invested money to kind of say, Hey, look, this can happen. We can do this. Mm -hmm. And they built these capabilities and showed everybody like, yeah, you can control a generator and you can literally pull it up and down and, and, mm -hmm. um, rev the, the RPMs up and down until it breaks itself and you've literally destroyed the asset. So mm -hmm. these things are, are real. Are they as prevalent as the ransomware campaigns? No. Are they prevalent as botnets and some of the more wide net mm -hmm. stuff? No, but they are out there and you need to be considering that when building protections. Let me ask you and, a follow-up. I guess Dave also has a lot of thoughts, but let me, let me just throw in like one question <laughs> at Grant and let you, let you jump in. So, you know, I, I really like this concept of low-hanging fruit in cybersecurity, right? And I, again, like, I want to bring this back a little bit to, I want to say, like, us in North America, and I guess, like, less political, but more, like, opportunistic, I want to say, like, making money, mm -hmm. like, let's just disrupt operation. Let's say mm -hmm. that tomorrow I wake up and I'm like, well, I would like to make some money in not so, I guess, like, legal ways. <laughs> this but, is like, only going to be a Yeah, bad. I was going to say, well, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm definitely not doing that, but I, I, I want to paint a scenario, right? So there's a facility and I'm trying to figure out, well, how can I get into their system, right? And so mm -hmm. I think like we always have this maybe idea or I at least have this idea of a hacker just sitting there with a the keyboard and, you know, downloading this malware. And then I'm going to try and figure out how to get that deployed. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to like, I guess, understand the process of, Obviously, the, uh, the the general like deployment where it kind of searches on its own is understandable to me. I don't know how effective that necessarily is, but let's say if you wanted to target a facility with malicious intent, is the lowest hanging fruit necessarily to try and hack through it, you know, through these, I want to say, digital means? Or is it me driving up to the facility, parking, trying to get through their, like, you know, networks? Obviously, they're broadcasting mm -hmm. like a guest network, like... What are you seeing like in the industry in terms of like those sorts of like attacks? Do you see a lot like vulnerabilities that are maybe a bit easier to exploit? Is it, you know, me trying to say I'm somebody else walking in through the front door and inserting a USB stick, which is slowly and slowly getting banned by many facilities. I'm just trying to maybe like get a better picture of what's possible and what could be, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Cause I, I think it also, it, it drives the point of like fundamentals, right? Like if anyone can just get on your guest network and obviously get to the OT side, then there's no point in discussing like, let's protect from these advanced attacks, right? So I'm just trying to gauge like where we stand as an industry. Yeah, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of different ways that an attacker can get into a network. Um, I think, you know, if you want to try to understand the anatomy of, a, of an attack, there is a, a really good phrase called the cyber kill chain. If you're ever curious what the mm -hmm. typical steps are in an attack, check out the cyber kill chain. A bunch of different people have created very, very different flavors of it, but it's all generally the same. So, you know, attacker is going to do some sort of recon. They're going to scan. They're going to try to figure out what is publicly accessible from the from the um, the uh, company you're trying to attack um, what kind of vulnerabilities might be publicly available I mean if you put a system directly on the internet that's vulnerable it's it's easy game and they're gonna find it and then they're gonna try to do something with it 
it may be if you're a mature organization and a lot of, you know, the companies that I work with, you at least have a boundary firewall. You've at least done that. Like we've gotten to a point as, you know, as, as a country where you understand that you can't just put systems directly on the internet. That's most, um, in most situations, not all. Mm -hmm. Um, if it is a little bit harder to get in, they'll probably start doing things remotely because it's, it's a business. There's risk involved. If they have to physically go to the site, there's risk that somebody might see them and say, hey, why are you here? Why are you dropping USB drives in the parking lot, hoping somebody's going to pick it up and walk it into the facility? Um, that ends up being very risky. So physically going to the site can can in, in, introduce more risk into what they're trying to do. So usually they'll try to do things remotely first. And oftentimes there's plenty of ways to get in remotely. I mean, you can do the phishing campaign thing, which is mm -hmm. most common. Social engineering is another mm -hmm. big one where if you know how to manipulate people, you can get information out of them. If you ever go to DEF CON, which is a great show for <laughs> understanding cybersecurity and seeing what crazy things can be done, they have a social engineering village where they'll literally put a person in a glass box soundproof and then they go through a scenario live in front of everybody where they try to get some sensitive information out of a company. And they're just said, here's the company you're targeting, go. And they call people, they start researching phone numbers online, who they can call from what part of the organization to try to get this piece of information. Mm -hmm. And it is crazy what they're able to do and get out of companies. I, I One time that I went, they were talking to some hotel chain and they managed to get like administrator privilege, administrative passwords to some like IT systems, like literally right there. And it they like started going through like the janitorial services and started talking to catering and like somehow you can fish your way through. So those are the things. And if you can do that remotely, it presents less risk for the attacker for getting caught. <clears throat> So they're usually going to try to do that first mm -hmm. to get in. Um, so those are the kinds of things. And when it comes to like email, phishing campaigns, social, um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, social manipulation, social engineering, awareness campaigns uh, for your organization really help with those kind of things. So knowing what to look for in an email, if it has a weird URL, knowing that if somebody's calling you and asking for your credentials, you probably shouldn't tell them anything about your credentials. So those are the kinds of things that awareness campaigns are a core part of any security program. You have to let people know because you're only as strong as your weakest link. If there's somebody in, you know, customer service who might not be aware that they shouldn't click that link, well, you're already done. I, there's a good <laughs> adage of the defender has to consider all of the possibilities and all of the vulnerabilities. The attacker only needs to find one. So yep. it's much harder to defend than it is to attack. And so you have to make sure that you're addressing even the human element in a lot of things. Absolutely. I, I think th those are great points. Um, <clears throat> just to potentially drill in a bit more about uh, <clears throat> maybe the OT attacks. Like, so, so the ones that we're like defining more as malicious, right? Talking mm -hmm. about going and, and creating code and doing all of that. I, I would say, I guess, generally in most of the conversations that, that I have, uh, when there are specific attacks on the OT side, they seem to be malicious and targeted, right? It seems to be someone has invested a significant amount of time and money to try to hack into that facility or, or that, you know, particular hardware 
And many times it seems like it comes about that if there is no T attack, it is a lot of times someone who was part of that organization and may now be a former employee, but still remembers admin password as a way to log in to mm -hmm. uh, to whatever the OT side is. Um, would you say that, that you're still seeing that? Uh, would you say that, that that's a good kind of description uh, on the malicious side? Yeah, for sure. I, I think you know the breadth of attacks is mm -hmm. so wide like oh yeah you're going to get the wide net stuff but there is there are targeted groups out there and mm -hmm. you know if you go to some of the companies uh that do ot cybersecurity, dracos does a really good job of this mm -hmm. they have their actor groups mm -hmm. um they actually identify based on the engagements they have and some of the data that they collect these actor groups they give them names and when they give them names, they give them um, standard tactics that they actually see them utilize okay. so that they can profile these things. So they can mm -hmm. say, hey, if I see, you know, these tactics and procedures being done on my network, if they see somebody trying to do a phishing campaign, if they see on the inside somebody scanning for a specific port on a specific type of PLC, they can correlate that with some of these actor groups and say yeah. like look we believe that this is this specific group because the tactics line up with things that they've done in the past so really there's a lot of great resources online for tracking some of these things um what the groups are um <clears throat> and so like what kind of tactics and procedures they do one of the nice resources and i wanted to get this in quick is yeah miter which is a government uh, contracting organization, they do this attack, MITRE ATT&CK, it's A-T-T -T and C-K. It stands for Adversarial Tactics, uh, Techniques, and Common Knowledge. They built a MITRE ATT&CK, which is actually like built on the kill chain, and it kind of mm -hmm. goes through different types of ways that each, at, through each part of the kill chain, what an attacker could do, what they could leverage, and then you can build like a little map across all of it on every mm -hmm. specific attack. They did one for ICS, which is really cool. They went out and they put in a entire um, tactics, techniques, and procedures for for hacking ICS systems based on a lot of the, the um, attacks that have already occurred in the wild. So you can kind of go through and you can read, and I have it pulled up here, but if you're under like mm -hmm. initial access, you can leverage, you know, remote services. So mm -hmm. say you're running, and this happened with a water utility in Florida, mm -hmm. you're running a remote desktop or team viewer. You're running team viewer, but you didn't properly protect your team viewer session and you leave it on all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, if you leave that on all the time and you didn't properly protect it with sec, you know, dual factor authentication or a good yeah. password, they can just hijack that session. All of a sudden, they're they're in the HMI because basically what the utility yeah. had done is left TeamViewer on. So when he go, the guy, the operator goes home, he can still see what the set points are. You know, is the CO two level being injected in the water fine? And they can you know just go right in, get access to that remote access, and then they can change levels and what kind of chemicals you're putting into the water. Luckily, right. in that instance, they had set points that limited that and prevented from, you know, any sort of chemical getting in the water that at an excessive level, but it's that easy. Like yep. that was a pretty straightforward incident. And then it goes through and there's, there's a bunch of different levels, initial access, execution, persistence, privilege, escalation, evasion, discovery, lateral movement, collection, command and control, um, 
inhibit response function. So that's, hey, if you're trying to respond and fix something, you can actually, there's been incidents where they inhibit it, you know, denial of servicing the phone system, <laughs> trying to mm -hmm. prevent them from fixing it. Um, impair process control. So actually break the process control system and then impact would be some of the things that could happen at the end of the attack. So there's all kinds of different <clears throat> um, points to each one of these. And then yeah. you can map each attack across the, um, across the uh, attack. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, so, so you, you brought up kind of that, that team viewer hack. Uh, I think uh, that, that's always very interesting, right? A couple of years ago, I remember reading about it. Uh, well, one of the painstaking parts uh, beyond what you said is I think there were like six iterations or at least two iterations of TeamViewer behind. So they hadn't updated yeah. it in years, exactly. right? But yes, they hadn't updated in years and it was a disgruntled former employee mm -hmm. um, on the exact opposite. So I worked with a I worked with a group in Mississippi kind of in the fuels, right? So in the oil and gas uh, style industry. And uh, we, we had the exact opposite, Grant. So they, they would break something once every, I don't know, six months or so. And so they, they'd call and it would just be this like tariff. Well, not really terrified phone call, but it would be this phone call and it would be fairly critical. And so you got to work with them and uh, whichever engineer picked up the phone got to spend the first 45 minutes explaining what a mouse was, how to take the mouse from, put your hand on the mouse, go mm -hmm. over to go to meeting or team viewer or whatever it was and open it up. And that was always the longest and most painful part of the conversation. So that group exact opposite of what you just talked about uh, with the water waste water down in Florida, because they couldn't open team viewer if literally their life depended on it. Until <laughs> you, you go and re remind them what a mouse is every single time. Um, yeah. But no, this is good. I'm, I'm happy and excited to continue this conversation. But first, we have some people to thank, right? So, so we want to thank Phoenix Contact uh, for, for sponsoring this uh, this whole Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Um, and we want to kind of talk a little bit about Phoenix and then talk about their MGuard, right? So uh, one of the things is, is I always think of Phoenix Contact as kind of this this kind of small, this company based out of like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, but they're honestly so much bigger. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, right? So they're based in Germany. They produce future-oriented component systems and solutions for electrical controls, networking, automation. When we when I, when I Vlad gets back, he's going to go point out some of his uh, Phoenix Contact stuff that he's got on the wall behind him. Right. So with worldwide network reaching more than 100 company, 100 countries and se more than 17,100 employees, which honestly just surprises me. I, I, I read this. Right. And I'm like, that's so many employees, which is awesome. Right. And so they maintain close relationships with the customers, something they believe is essential for the shared success. And, and again, it doesn't feel like a company of 17 plus thousand employees. Uh, so their wide variety of innovative products makes it easy for our customers to implement the latest technology in various applications and industries. They focus on energy, infrastructure, process and factory automation. I want to talk a little bit about the the MGuard uh, product family, right? Then we're going to ask Grant if he's worked with the MGuard product family just to put him on just to put him on the spot, right? So the MGuard product family is a proven security technology that enables you to control uh, and safeguard communication within your pro production network. It's the cornerstone of a holistic approach to properly secure your, your OT network. The central management software MGuard device manager enables easy and efficient system configuration, maintenance, and operation, especially when a large number of MGuard security routers are installed. Thanks to a wide variety of product versions, we offer the right product for every application. So a couple of advantages is the gigabit data rate, 
Security is baked in uh, to the entire product lifecycle. It's from secured development process in accordance with IEC uh, 62243-4-1 to the integration of important security functions, low-run vulnerability of MGuard devices due to hardening and application secure by design principles. PSIRT monitors uh, vulnerabilities on a daily basis, and these are evalu evaluated and rectified based on the severity of the problem, mm -hmm. plus a robust and, and secure global connectivity to your machines via the most complete line of VPN-enabled devices, coupled with a new version of MGuard Secure Cloud uh, version 2.14, uh, conforming with the MIIT category I. B14. Uh, but again, thank you very much to Phoenix Contact for sponsoring this. Uh, Grant, uh, do, do you deal with, like, like you talked about layer three, right? We, we know from past conversations, well, I know from past conversations, because I've, I've had these conversations, that it is layer three. Do, do you work with the MGAR products uh, regularly? Yes, extensively. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so this, so, was, this was the answer I was hoping for. Can you give us a little of your experience? Because as, as we told everyone last week, this is like outside of, of our experience. So whenever we get someone who, who uses the, the product, uh, we, we love to get their thoughts and feelings on it. Yeah, so I've, I've worked with the MGAR product line the entirety of my career at Phoenix. And it's kind of funny because one of the first things I started off doing was supporting the, the cloud. So our remote okay. access cloud, uh, back in the day before we had an automated backend system, a uh, customer would request a configuration and it would be me and a couple other people sitting down mm -hmm. with MGuards and we would build the configurations by hand and email them out. Ooh. Now, that, okay. that was a long time ago. Now we have all that automated, but that was kind of my first touch point with, with the MGuard product line and, and the cybersecurity products. Um, but for Phoenix Contact, MGuard is our security product line. So when we do you know, engagement with customers to deal with security problems mm -hmm. and provide solutions, the MGuard is sort of the flagship product. Um, okay. it, it is really the best for that micro-segmentation, you know, just to use a term that um, okay. Pascal used. Mm -hmm. It's really great for that, if you're talking the Purdue model, that level one, level two um, mm -hmm. security to provide, you know, it's DIN mount, it's very compact, you get a lot of features in, in that compactness and you can put it distributed out to each machine and give you that micro segmentation and get firewalling all the way down to that level. Okay. That's where we've had the most success with the product. Um, that's been a lot of the engagements I've been involved in. I've done MGuard projects for all the different industries, manufacturing, oil, gas, water, wastewater, energy. So that's kind of the core is getting security down to the lowest levels you can. And then the secure cloud for remote access mm -hmm. is great if you're, you know, you need to have vendor support or maybe internal engineer support remotely, um, especially in this environment now that with COVID, everybody works remote. Um, yeah. One of our big customers uses it to be able to get access to machines from experts that may not be lo local oh. to the facility mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that they can get in and, and, you know, reduce downtime if there's ever an issue with machines. So those are kind of the main points with the product. Interesting. So, so does does the MGuard allow for kind of tunneling through um, directly into a machine to to go look at the to go look at the code to go look at kind of everything else that that comes with that? Yeah. So that's what the VPN okay. provides you is the ability okay. to bridge your laptop to mm -hmm. the MGuard and then being able to remotely access okay. the devices behind the machine. Now, we always say okay. that. 
with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. So the MGuard Secure Platform, you know, we work with a lot of customers to make sure that when they get that remote access to the machine, that they're limiting mm -hmm. it to only the devices they need access to. Mm -hmm. The MGuard Secure Cloud Portal has the ability to um, put two-factor authentication. You have account management. Okay. You can force password refreshes. So it gives you the ability to kind of manage who has access and then give them um, you know, secure credentials to be able to get access. We also have a lot of role um, management. So, you know, yeah. you can create a user on the portal and then you can only, they can only see specific machines if they're logged in, they can't see other machines. Really? So yeah, that's kind of the, the nice feature set with the cloud is it gives you a more control over the remote access. Interesting. And then um, with that, it is like best best use case to go put an MGuard in, in every panel at every machine. Something allow that to give you the micro segmentation and allow you to drill directly down to the machine or the line that you need. I mean, I would say that's what the recommendation would be. But, yeah. you know, in practicality, I think you really needed to, yeah. to figure out what works best for your organization and your process. Okay. If you have vulnerable systems, I mean, one of the things that I always talk about is patch management is difficult in ICS yeah. systems and OT. If you can't patch things, you should really consider putting firewalls down as low as you can. That way you can filter mm -hmm. traffic. That way, if a vulnerability is published on a PLC on a certain port number or a certain service, you have something already in place that you can quick add a firewall rule and, and mitigate that risk a little bit. And then okay. when you have the next scheduled downtime, you can apply the patch. So that's where the value is. And, you know, if you want to put it in every panel, great. If you want to, you know, provide an architecture that kind of puts it in a place that it can protect a few machines that works too. Yep. You know, one of the things that, we have for Phoenix Contact as a services team for networking mm -hmm. and security. That's mm -hmm. what I do. So I do security assessments as well. And I go in and I help customers figure out what architecture works best for them to get them the most security and the most return uh, on their investment. So okay. that's what we try to do with every customer. Interesting. Th thank you, Grant. Uh, I think Vlad has questions because this is now just going to be the segment that we pep Grant with questions about MGuard. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. But I mean, we'll talk a little bit offline because I am curious about the product, but that's, uh, uh, you know, maybe we can spend a bit more time uh, mm -hmm. chatting about it offline. But Grant, I want to go back to the question of uh, penetration testing, right? And uh, again, like mm -hmm. I'm going to illustrate a quick scenario. So from a controls engineering standpoint, right? So imagine that I'm working in a facility. We have probably a team of, I don't know, four or five engineers. And I watched the Dave and Vlad show and realized, well, oh my God, like we, we have a lot of trouble. Like maybe we need to figure out like maybe not necessarily bring in an outside consultant like yet, mm -hmm. but we are trying to figure out what could be the first steps that we need to take in order to figure out where the vulnerabilities lie. Right. And mm -hmm. I guess like trying to understand, like, what can someone do in a practical sense to, again, not necessarily do a full, like blown, like, as we said, like enterprise penetration testing example. But mm -hmm. what are the like the low hanging fruit that people should be watching out for and kind of starting to identify, as you said, like before, maybe a consultant who's a lot more knowledgeable is involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the first step with any organization, if you kind of have the realization is, oh, we're not as secure as you really need to be. There's some real issues here. If we were to be attacked, you know, the whole thing is going to crumble. I think what you need to do mm -hmm. is if you're in a management position, 
get to executive leadership and start expressing these um, concerns. If you're not in management, go to your manager and start expressing these concerns. Get buy-in. Mm-hmm. Try to explain it in a way that you know makes sense in terms of hey, you know, if the PLC goes down, we're losing thousands of dollars a minute, or we're losing millions of dollars a day. We don't have any protections in place if ransomware comes through and takes out the PC. I can't operate this system manually, or I can't, you know, if the PLC were to be hacked in, you know, some insane incident and then it's no longer operational, then we're losing money. Express these concerns, get buy-in. I know that's that's usually difficult because we're all running, you know, on thin bottom lines. But you kind of have to have a champion in any organization for cybersecurity. If there's no person owning it, especially in OT and mm-hmm. ICS, if there's nobody who's kind of that that owner, it really has a yeah. difficult time going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in leadership and you find somebody who has, you know, a knack for that or a or a interest in it, foster that. Give them resources. Mm-hmm. Let them go to trainings, build that up. You know, I think, you know, my background and Pascal's background is just, it, mm-hmm. his story is so great. And I, I love listening to, to him talk and reading his books and stuff. And I'm hoping I'm doing <laughs> him service being his follow-up and his, his closer, I guess. But, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you we all start out in, in a controls environment doing control stuff. And then you start seeing, oh, there's some things that are not okay with this. And we were lucky enough to be in organizations that listened and we got through mm-hmm. and were in, you know, built up a security program or got involved with cybersecurity and started helping other organizations. And those are the things that we need more of. We need more organizations that take, you know, ICS and OT security seriously and then build up these people. Once you have that person in place, I think the first step, and I'm just going to say the exact same thing Pascal said, is build an architecture, figure out how I can put a boundary, uh, secure ICS DMZ between IT and OT, don't allow that communications through the through without some specific parameters, and then try to segment as much as possible, build barriers. Defense in depth is still relevant in ICS and OT. Build yep. as many walls as you can. Don't be the low-hanging fruit. If you have vulnerable systems, if you're running old Windows, old... Um, operating systems, devices that are 20 years old that have vulnerabilities, find a way to get a firewall in front of them, find a way to get some sort of protected device in it, some sort of control. Those are sort of the fundamental things is you can't defend a network if the network doesn't have any any defense mechanisms. If there's no firewalls, there's no segmentation, it's a completely flat network. You can put all the monitoring tools you want in there, but there's no mechanisms to prevent access control. So those network access control is kind of the first step. And then if you want to start getting into some advanced things, you know, bringing in some of the ICS um, visibility and asset monitoring and asset management vendors, bring them in. They provide a lot of value in terms of asset management and monitoring for anomalies. Um, Consultants can help build a security program. So one of the things that I always say is, all right, so you got a security architecture in place, great. Now what happens if you see an incident? What happens? What do you do? How do you respond? How do you recover? You got to have incident response plans. You got to have procedures in place. You got to have a patch management process. You got to have a configuration audit process because configurations need to change over time. There's 
there's always vulnerabilities being published. If a vulnerability is published, you need to have a, a procedure for going in and adding a firewall rule to a firewall to prevent, you know, to lower the risk of that vulnerability being exploited. So those are the things I'd say architecture is number one. And, you know, we as Phoenix Contact can help you. There's a lot of vendors out there that can help you with that. Um, and then if you want to bring in a consultant to get some of those more advanced pieces, more of those organizational pieces, that's also a good avenue. Well, yeah, I guess uh, as a follow-up to that, because uh, that's a very <clears throat> good response, but I, I want to, I guess, like harp on the idea that the initial buy-in is usually like what I have conversations with people with. Because again, like I talk to a lot of like control systems engineers and managers who are struggling to get that buy-in, right? And yeah. I think that mm -hmm. even though they might have really grounded ideas and like thoughts on how we can proceed, they don't necessarily, or I guess like my question is like, is there a way to get more data, right? So that instead of just saying, well, guys, like we need to secure our network and that's going to solve a lot of our issues. Here's a, a list of data that I've actually, you know, like I've done my own like, penetration tests and I've like, I was able to hack in. <laughs> I'm assuming hopefully not from the guest network, but you know what I mean? Like I was able to maliciously attack like our own systems. This is why we need what I'm proposing. You know what I mean? Is there, is there maybe like a piece of hardware and, and, and I'm not necessarily like suggesting hardware software, but I'm wondering how to get that data. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, Grant, Grant, before you answer, I want to make sure that everyone knows that Dave and Grant do not suggest you do this. And I'm sure Vlad's also not suggesting you do this. This would be a horrible, potentially career ending suggestion recommendation. Now, Grant, please continue. Um, you know, I would say the, the executive buy-in is a common problem with a lot of organizations because there's budgets. There's only so much money to do so much things. Cybersecurity is one of those things that's not super tangible. Um, the return on that investment isn't super tangible. The only time there's a return on the investment is if there's an incident. And yes. sometimes, you know, you go a long time without an incident. Um, I, I think the best data points are probably incidents themselves that might have some, you know, you can get some public information on it that kind of tie back to what you do and just kind of showing, hey, here's a real world example of an attack that actually affected, you know, somebody else in our industry. And what were the ramifications? What was the loss of credibility for that company? What was mm -hmm. the loss in dollars in production? If you can tie to some specific metrics in terms of what losses occurred, it makes it an easier conversation. You know, I, tie, I like to tie everything back to risk because, you know, executives risk is something that they deal with every day, you know, insurance purposes, whatever. Um, if you tie it back to risk and saying, here's the risk and the impact of what an attack could do. Like if, if we lose this production line because the PLC has stopped operating, it's going to be, you know, X number of dollars an hour. Um, you know, if I have, if my MES system goes down and I don't have a backup, I've got to call this vendor and they're going to charge me X number of dollars to come in and try to re rebuild that MES system or that server. Um, if you can find some very tangible things that kind of give dollar values or some sort of risk mes metric and risk assessments are a core part of, of cybersecurity, mm -hmm. you can get some hard data on that. Another great resource is, you know, all the ICS security vendors out there, they publish their yearly reports. 
Those are great sources of information for generally as an ICS OT community. What have we seen in, in um, you know, in our engagements? There's usually percentages and data points of so many vendors have, you know, have no access control for remote access that, or, you know, they've been hit by ransomware, 80% or something, you know, one of some of those figures, but there's at least data points in those that can be useful for somebody trying to build a, a argument for more security. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you I know, mean, I, like and, I like that. Yeah. I, I like the comparables idea. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I haven't thought of it like that way. It's really hard. And if you're in your environment to kind of, you, I mean, if you're the, the OT engineer, the process control engineer, you know, the system, um, you know, if you can find a vendor that can talk talk with you about what things need to be addressed mm -hmm. um, in terms of security, you know we had an engagement with a company and and they it was a very tangible incident where they had somebody come in with a laptop and plugged into a switch where they shouldn't have plugged into, mm -hmm. and there was a duplicate IP address, and all of a sudden they had uh, a device go down and. They it was just somebody plugging in the laptop. Yep. And this is one thing I you know, Dave, you talked about it with the water incident. Insider threats are real. You also need mm -hmm. to consider those. You need to consider the employees or disgruntled employees or just Joe who doesn't understand that he can't plug into the switch. <laughs> You've got to consider yeah. those as well. Those are important attacks. They are considered a cyber attack. Anyway, plugged in, brought down a device and had an incident. People were mad. So yep. we came in and we said, look you need to protect against, you know, un, unneeded access or people who should not have access to the, you, you should not be able to plug in on any open port on the switch and get access to the network. So we started talking about, you know, um, radius authentication or 802.1x, which is great for mm -hmm. port-based authentication, doing Mac authentication, things like that, port control so that, you know, any open port is down by, by default, those kinds of things. Um, so the, those are like tangible things that you can go like, Hey, I had something happen. It may not be a cyber incident, maybe somebody plugging in where they shouldn't, but it's, mm -hmm. it's tangible. And then some, a result happened, which, you know, brought down a system and then you see dollar values. And like, this is just, this is just the beginning. If it were worse, here's what it could be. So those are, those are things like tangible things that you can kind of bring to, to management. Absolutely. I, really like that. No, I appreciate that. Grant. Dave? And I would say kind of in addition to that, most people, most facilities know what downtime costs yeah. them, right? So you, you're going to work with organizations that are a million bucks a day. You know, you might work with organizations that are a million bucks a month or, or a tenth of that. And they, they make, you know, a million bucks a year, right? But but you're going to have some ideas to, you know, the revenue of your organization. At least most people know, have some idea of the revenue of their organization. So you can extrapolate that out into downtime. Um and while I don't love kind of starting or basing the conversation on, hey, if this happens, this is what we stand to lose, to, to Grant's point, at some point, risk analysis is, hey, we're a million dollars a day. If we go down because of, you know, a, a cyber attack, right? So if they go and knock out our SCADA, we're going to pay someone half a million dollars and they're going to take a week, two weeks, six months to go try to bring it back or try to rebuild it. And that's going to cost, you know, X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so it may be, you know, $500,000 from outside vendors to try to bring us back or to rebuild us, but it's also going to take two, five, six months in order to do that. 
And is your organization going to survive if you've been down for six mm-hmm. months be, uh, be because of all of that? So again, I'm not a huge fan of saying, hey, we've got all of this to yeah. lose. But to, to Grant's point, at some point, you have to have the conversation re-risk analysis of we're a $300 million a year organization, guys. We can afford to spend a hundred grand and put a firewall so that all of our systems aren't open out into out and everything. Mm-hmm. And then at, at some point, you're going to figure out where that is. And then typically, in my experience, this is a build, right? So you, you, you create a baseline, you create a plan, and then you build on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I agree. I don't I don't always like going in doom and gloom. <laughs> it doesn't go over well in the first conversation. I think, you know, that's the back pocket thing that you have mm-hmm. when maybe you're getting some resistance and they're asking you for tangible information. That's where you go to kind of say, like, look, this is very tangible. There's dollar values associated with this. And it, it's it's a really hard conversation to have. If somebody had figured it out, yep. I think there'd be they'd be making tons of money because even in IT they still deal with this. I mean, you yep. have some, a CISO who's literally on the board and he's still arguing for more money. So absolutely, it, it's hard. It is. I, I would agree. I would also say I'm not sure I've ever worked in a in an organization that people aren't constantly out there arguing for money, right? <laughs> like, like that, that is that the, the organization is, we need to do these things. And man, I'd really love to do it if we could just, I don't know, you know, print an extra half a trillion dollars and then we could all go spend all of our budgets on whatever we want to do. And oh, it'd be really great if we don't have to worry about what production looks like on the backside. And then we can just spend the money and, and do all of the things that we want. So sadly, that is not the world we live in. But speaking of doom and gloom, uh, Grant, I'm going to ask you the same same question that I asked uh, Pascal last week. He was a bit doom and gloom when, when I asked him <laughs> to predict the future. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping you're just, I mean, to, I mean, to, to be more doom and gloom, you'd have to say the robots are all going to take over <laughs> before our next show. So uh, can, can you, can you give us uh, can you give us a future prediction? What do you think is going to, going to happen in the industry? Yeah. And you know, I, I tend to agree with what Pascal said about the, <laughs> it's only going to get worse <clears throat> because Money is being made, you know, there's, there are actors out there, there's a black market for ransomware for this stuff, like, there will be more focused attacks, it will happen. But my, my response is, and my hope is, and what I think happens in the future is that, you know, this will cause companies as more of these incidents happen, as more of them be high profile, you start to see some of the the outcomes of it, some of the loss in dollar values. Mm There's been a huge effort by a lot of people in the OT and ICS type security community for awareness to get everybody at least on the same pages. This stuff is real. It really will happen. I think over time, that's going to lead to more organizations taking security seriously and then yep. building that into requirements for procurement language, which is going to force vendors like Phoenix Contact to do more from a security perspective, to build security into products, to stop with this insecure by design stuff which mm-hmm. there's a lot of standards out there that are, we're, you know, we're working towards to try to help with that. Yep. That then is going to then drive more OT security professionals being needed and then more people mm-hmm. being in that field. So we'll have more people, we'll have more capabilities. So I'm hoping, you know, as the rate of attacks goes up, that there's the rate of technology matches and the rate of resources and people also matches. So that's really what I see. Okay. 
I, I like that. Thank you for being a little bit more uh, positive. Uh, thank you for being a little bit more positive with that. Some of us had mild heart attacks uh, uh, b- b- before, but uh, but no. Hopefully the hopefully the future is bright because we've learned from our mistakes. Uh, absolutely, of which we've made many. Um, so uh, the, the next question, I, I was going to make a joke about mistakes, but that that probably wouldn't work. And I don't think we had enough bad uh, bad offensive cybersecurity jokes uh, yeah. in the in the chat to uh, to make that bad joke. But no, uh, Grant, we would love a, a book recommendation. Uh, yeah, we would love we love a book recommendation. I think you told us a little bit about Sandstorm earlier, so maybe, maybe a couple book recommendations from you. Uh, what, what do you have for us? Yeah, so uh, Sandworm is the book. It's by Andy Greenberg. Um, It is a sort of historical guide to Sandworm, which is a hacking group. Um, It kind of goes through their entry into the global internet and what they've done, how they've operated. Andy does a great job. It kind of reads like a novel, which is kind of cool because it goes historically through each piece. But it's all real accounts. He interviews real people from real organizations that have dealt with this this actor group. Um, some of the big ICS names are in this book with quotes and, and discussion pieces. Interesting. But it goes through each one of their attacks and then what what the purpose was, what the results were, and kind of goes into the the you know the crazy like you know guy with a hood in a dark room like hacking kind of thing, like the, the capabilities that some of these hackers have is is just mind-blowing. And some of the things that they do and they're able to do is mind-blowing. So it's a really good historical representation of that. Um, other books, you know, some of the things that Pascal mentioned, like the Eric Knapp, Joel Engel, um, Industrial Networking Security Series is, is really good. I love that for, you know, people trying to get started in ICS security, building a foundation. Pascal's books are all great. I have a copy of his on my bookshelf in my room here. Um, there's another really good book called Countering Cyber, Cyber Sabotage from Andy Bachman and Sarah Freeman. They were at INL, which is a research, um, government research, and they do a lot of cybersecurity research for control systems, specifically okay. for energy. But they kind of developed this concept of like pairing cybersecurity with actual control engineering and, and trying to use control engineering concepts to provide security outside of security controls, building security into your engineering process. So things like having manual backups, things that you can manually operate a system, you know, if it, if your you know, PC goes down, things that can kind of keep security controls outside of the standard security control so it's it's a really good read interesting i think all of those i think all of those are very interesting um now now grant i'm going to be honest my wife and i have been looking for a couple of good audiobooks to listen to in the car i am quite confident she's not going to be interested in any of those great recommendations you just gave but i think between vlad and i we'll grab at least <laughs> one or two of those in uh, in audiobook form to uh, to listen to thank you uh, thank you so much for that um Vlad, you quick follow-up. Yeah, quick follow-up, yeah. Grant. Uh, I know you mentioned DEF CON earlier in the mm-hmm. conversation. Uh, I guess like quick thoughts on, you know, someone from a control standpoint like OT, uh, I guess like the relevance of DEF CON to them. Yeah, so there's a there's a few security shows that like we as Phoenix contact attend and, mm-hmm. and you know, as a community, they're kind of out there. DEF CON's an interesting one because it's not really like an an industry show per se for industrial it's a general like hacker conference um and it's not 
super vendory. It's more about learning about the different types of mm, security sectors or, um, you know, ICS is one of them. So there's different villages, mm -hmm. which is how the whole I ICS village got uh, concept got started is they have different um, domains within each. They have like cloud, they have, I, they had a um, social engineering, mm -hmm. um, like automobiles, and mm -hmm. they have an ICS one. And the group that goes for the ICS one does a great job providing like ranges and different activities that you can do and you can learn about different control systems. And like um, years ago, I attended and I helped with the actual demo and we had some hardware that people could plug into and try to break and hack. We had like a stack light that was cycling through lights and you basically had to reverse engineer the Modbus protocol, sniff some packets and figure out what the registers were and start flipping things. There's a Profinet part, there was an Ethernet IP part. Mm -hmm. So it gives people the kind of an ability to go in and kind of learn more about it and, um, you know, kind of share the knowledge for, for ICS security. Um, there's a, a couple other conferences, you know, Black Hat is a great one that follows mm -hmm. right after um, DEF CON. That's a little, there's more vendors there that you can talk to vendors about different um, cybersecurity hardware and controls. S4 was a big one for us in Phoenix Contact. We've attended it. It's usually in the January timeframe. That's really focused in on cutting edge technology for cybersecurity. Um, so it, it's also a great one. And then there's the RSA conference in California. Um, that is big for cybersecurity in general. They also have some industrial cybersecurity um, vendors there and some demos for that conference. Awesome. No, I appreciate that uh, run through for sure. I, I guess like I've been, I've been having conversations with people that have been to these conferences. So I'm yeah. curious again from like more of an industrial side, like what is, uh, what is offered, but no, that's awesome. Thank you. No problem. Absolutely. I think all of those sound fun, especially DEF CON. DEF CON's always been one of those. Like, I just, like, I wouldn't it get anything fun. out of it. It's, it's like, you know, WWDC when they were doing it uh, at the, at Apple and it was all live and in person and, and things like that. I'm like, that would be really fun. I'm never going to be able to like go there and get things out of it that anyone else who would take my ticket would. But it just seems like a, like an interesting, fun sort of uh, fun sort of place to be. At least, yeah. uh, at least everything I read on it, uh, I read on it as who knows. Maybe Vlad's going to DefCon 20. <laughs> it uh, is fun. It's in Vegas, so it is a good time. <laughs> absolutely no no but very good uh taking it maybe a little bit back towards uh towards you know the, the industrial side uh talking about some career advice um mm -hmm. what what's your career advice people you know maybe specifically looking to get in or advance their career um on the ics cybersecurity side yeah i would say you know, if you're if you're starting out fresh out of college and you want to go into ICS security, I think it really does mm -hmm. make sense to start in a controls environment as a controls engineer. I think Pascal said this, it, you know, intern at a controls yep. company, learn about processes. I mean, I think it's even better if you can start out doing that, um, get that fundamentals down. What does the environment look like? What is it, the difference between the OT and IT? Um, that's mm -hmm. really the foundation. And, you know, that's where I came from. Um, and it really helps. Like when you understand the protocols, the devices at a deep level, going and trying to secure them and, and you know, figuring out the best ways to protect these devices, it, it just makes sense. Um, so that would be my recommendation. 
if you are already a controls engineer or mm -hmm. if you've already done your time to say <laughs> in automation um, and you really have an interest in it, go pursue mm -hmm. it, please. We yep. need more people. Um, you know, I always like to, to reach out to and talk to people who are interested in ICS mm -hmm. security within Phoenix, external. Mm -hmm. I've been in engagements with customers before where, you know, it's a controls engineer and he, you know, as we're working on a project, he, he stops by and he's like, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this stuff. And, you know, this is really cool. And I, I really like to get more involved. Do you have any like resources or anything that I can look at? And I'll, you know, give him some training organizations or, mm -hmm. you know, some some different certifications he could take. That is awesome. Like we need more yeah. people in the community and we need more people that can that understand the controls and the automation at a deep level and then want to learn the security part on top. No, absolutely. I, I would I would agree. I would say our industry in general and especially all of the, the very kind of niche skills, including networking and cybersecurity, certainly mm -hmm. need more people because there aren't enough people and lots of seemingly never ending yes. supply of work <laughs> to uh, to go around. No, but that, that, that's been amazing. Uh, so last question for you, Grant, is uh, is who should reach out to you? You know, are you looking to have these conversations? Um, are, is Phoenix hiring kind of this is your your open forum to ask from from our community uh, what, what you're looking to do, who you're looking to talk to? Yeah. So, um, you know, in general, I say Phoenix is hiring. We are looking for some network and cybersecurity specialists. Uh, I do know a colleague of mine on the services team who's looking for some cybersecurity specialists to help with services and helping customers out. Interesting. So that's kind of the first thing. If you're interested, reach out to me. If you, if you don't want to reach out to me, Andre Suazo is his name. You can reach okay. out to Andres as well. Um, and he's you know, open for, for conversations. Um, I'd say anyone who's really kind of wants to learn more about ICS security, wants to learn mm -hmm. more about what Phoenix can do for you, not what Phoenix can do for you, just in general. Yeah, mm -hmm. reach out to me. I always love talking to people. The ICS community is, is awesome. The automation community is awesome. We all try to help each other and we all talk shop all the time. So I love doing that. Um, the ICS security community is very tight too. We all mm -hmm. try to help each other and, and kind of share our knowledge. So I always enjoy, you know, having conversations with people. So anybody who's interested in learning more, um, just hit me up. Awesome. Awesome. No, thank you, Grant. This, this has been amazing. Uh, who knows? Maybe next week Vlad's going to have his Phoenix contact cybersecurity hat on and, uh, and he's moving, <laughs> moving to Harrisburg. Uh, but no, uh, th thank you very much, Grant. This, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for, for coming and talking to us and, and just like every week, the, the, the time flies. So thank you, Grant. Thank you, Phoenix Contact. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, this is your reminder. If you have made it this far in podcast or other form, please you know, hit that thumbs up and like. Follow Grant and Vlad and myself. Follow Phoenix Contact. If you guys are on LinkedIn, you'll see all of those links um, already in the show, in the description. If you're listening on podcast, we'll go drop those links in the show notes as well. Um, and until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, everyone.